Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. We have a sort of patchwork episode this week. Uh, it's just a bizarre time every year because of graduation and things like that. So uh, I am going to cover some mail and news, and then we're going to check in with at least Dr. Nelson uh, on the topic uh, neurological phenomena among lifters. So this could be uh, nervous system weirdness of almost any variety. Uh, I don't actually know what Mike is going to say at this point. He's going to send me some um, information and in, in an audio file. So uh, let's get to it, and then we'll get to the, the topic of uh, neurological issues. The first one is from uh, Emma. Emma said, hi, uh, love the show. Just wanted to send this your way as I thought it might be of interest. So she sent me a study. Uh, it's got a little bit of um, mechanistic chewiness uh, behind it. Uh, so I might simplify some parts of it just a little as far as uh, blood sugar control and whatnot. But it says, it's okay uh, to indulge for a while, a uh, study suggests, the body adapts to occasional short-term overeating. Now, obviously, this could be of interest to bulking bodybuilders or powerlifters that are trying to eat like an a-hole, like Phil says, Um this was actually through Science Daily, but it essentially it says a new study suggests that the duration of a bout of overeating can affect how the body adapts as far as insulin processing and calorie intake, uh, you know, the increases in calorie intake that might change your metabolism. This appeared in the American Journal of Physiology, Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, let's see. Researchers from Australia studied a small group of healthy, lean men. So that got my attention right away. This isn't in pre-diabetic, obese, late middle-aged people or that sort of thing. Uh, although that'd be fine, it's a different population. Uh, so healthy, lean men, and they had them overfeed for a short period of five days that they felt was indicative of someone who might overeat during the holidays, or chronic overeating that lasted for 28 days days. So you might ask, well, what did they eat? What did they choose to as the fuel uh, to overindulge in uh, and that sort of thing? Um, high calorie snacks, uh, such as chocolate, meal replacement drinks, potato chips, uh, up to about a thousand more calories than normal. So a thousand calories worth of overfeeding, that's enough to see changes. I mean, I don't you're not going to see overall whole body fat changes in five days, but certain differences in fat cell metabolism, for example, or certain depots of fat around the body, or maybe the way your pancreas is functioning, these sorts of things uh, could change uh, in probably as short as five days. But let's take a look here. The report says that although the amount of visceral fat that surrounds the internal organs increased substantially, short-term overeating did not have a significant effect on the men's weight or fat mass. Well, again, that's not surprising. I mean, 
just to see five pounds uh, of fat gain, right, of body weight gain, you'd have to be consuming something like 17 or 18,000 calorie surplus. And that's not going to happen <laughs> in five days. In fact, in this study, there would only be about a 5,000 calorie surplus. Uh, that might be a pound and a half of overall gain. So I'm not surprised they weren't able to measure any overall gain. In addition, fasting levels of blood sugar and C-peptide, an amino acid that the body releases in response to increased production of insulin. So again, just think insulin processing like earlier. Um, In response to the increased production of insulin, right, from the overeating, uh, did not change. Which they, the researchers, uh, felt surprising. The chronic overeating did increase total body fat as well as visceral fat, right? Gut fat. Think of like around your intestines, behind your rectus abdominis, right? Behind the abdominal wall there. Um, As well as post-meal sugar and C-peptide. It did not, however, affect fasting blood sugar, um, some internal endogenous production of glucose. Uh, I won't bore you with details, but essentially more of carbohydrate handling in the body, not substantially changed, including glucose disposal, uh, apparently not changed. They then go on to speculate that this may be because uh, maybe there's something with dietary fat percentage changing, which they feel didn't really happen in this group that much, uh, the long-term group, uh, maybe really at fault as far as depositing lots of fat and altering glucose disposal and really wreaking havoc with your carbohydrate handling. So, uh, yeah, they felt apparently that this was a more nutritionally balanced approach, and maybe that's why they didn't see uh, some of these aberrant changes in carb handling. Now, I find this a little odd because they did talk about things, what did I say, potato chips and um, chocolate and things like that, but uh, I think they focused on carbohydrates as the overfeeding source. It says, these findings suggest that early adaptations in response to carbohydrate overfeeding are directed at increasing glucose disposal in order to maintain whole body insulin sensitivity. So as far as interpreting this for our listenership, um, five days, I don't think any of us are going to worry about that sort of thing. Although it is interesting that their deep gut fat, their visceral fat did seem to change even that quickly. Um, But that you're not going to make yourself pre-diabetic or something like that over a a four-week period of plowing through extra carbohydrates. Um, Presumably, even if it's from potato chips and that kind of thing. Uh, Again, they seem to be suggesting, although not really evidencing that You'd have to really screw up your fat intake uh, in order to cause serious problems with uh, carbohydrate sensitivity, with your insulin sensitivity. So interesting stuff. It's always fun to look at overfeeding studies. Thank you, Emma. What's next here? We have several, so we're going to table a couple of these. But um, Daniel, he says, uh, Dear Lonnie, Mike, and Phil, for some background, I was a multi-sport athlete when I was young. And I ended up tearing my ACL and having major knee reconstruction at 16 years old. For several years after high school, I worked manual labor jobs, uh, though the last few years I've transitioned into a sedentary career. I'm turning 39 next month and going on five to six years of serious training after letting my health go for a bit in my 20s. My main focus in the gym has been compound movements and more specifically conjugate programming. 
I'm naturally small-boned. Well, I feel you there, Daniel. Uh, which has hindered me. Uh, and uh, through getting stronger, I've noticed that this last year, I've had more joint pain and uh, CNS, right, central nervous system depletion, presumably just feeling burnt here. Seeing other older powerlifters have severe joint issues, I'm wanting to ensure my 40s and 50s are not filled with ibuprofen chugging and surgeries. <laughs> that almost feels like a stab at me and Phil. <laughs> I, I I know where you're coming from, brother. Um, the last couple of months, I've started to do more bodybuilding style workouts, uh, you know, higher volume, a little bit lower intensity. Um, I should make a caveat, though. Editors know uh, they, they're not necessarily low intensity as far as bodybuilding goes. Sometimes you're using a lot of weight on the bar, but I do understand you're not talking about, you know, doing uh, triples all the time. Um, and it's been a great variation for my body, even if I miss going heavy sometimes. My two questions are this. One, will heavier compound movements likely lead to more knee, back, and hip pain issues? And two, I feel like maybe I should put on more mass uh, to help give a better foundation for heavier weights. I'm currently 5'10", 190 pounds, uh, and hence be healthier moving forward. Uh, does this seem sound? Thanks for all you guys do. You've been an inspiration to my wife and I for the seven to eight years we've been listening. Thank you so much, Dan. All right, Dan, um, for your first question, will heavier compound movements likely lead to more knee, back, and hip pain issues? I'm going to point you to two episodes uh, of Iron Radio where we've, we dug into this quite a bit. Episode 374, we got into the published peer-reviewed literature um, because I think I was mentioning at the time that I had read from the National Strength and Conditioning Association that heavy lifting doesn't cause osteoarthritis later in life. So we actually dug around a little bit and looked at injuries, uh, not necessarily just chronic overuse injuries, which I think you're getting at, but just injuries in general and w what kind of shape does bodybuilding training or different types of weightlifting, uh, what does it do as far as the you know the, how good a shape your joints are in your low back your knees etc so go check out please episode 374 uh, we also did another one on injury episode i think it was 425 you'd have to take a look uh we had a orthopedic surgeon discussing certain musculoskeletal problems from heavy lifts so episode 374 and 425 and in fact, if anybody's interested in searching almost anything in our huge backlog, if you were to go to ironradio.org and click on the RSS feed, our little syndication feed, and then just hit control F, right? So you could find a word on the page. So in this case, maybe you type in injury. You're going to find uh, several instances of this lighting up, including the episodes I just mentioned. So um, I, I think in short, Dan, it's not going to cause huge problems um but i do think it's probably wise right for healthy longevity um you know as phil often says you know highly competitive sport is not synonymous with maximal health and longevity so if you want to lean toward that side i agree with you man the bodybuilding style training you can get brutal in the gym you know, with higher reps and that kind of thing. And I don't mean super high reps, but, you know, you're doing sets of 12 and 15 or even 20 for a pump. Um, maybe you do a couple sets of moderately heavy work, you know, do your four or five sets of five reps and, and then, you know, have fun and get a big pump and do a bunch of um, 
you know, repetitions. So I, I like that. In fact, my brother and I used to call that the Rick Valente approach. We used to watch back in the uh, 90s, I think it was, uh, Body Shaping on ESPN. And they had this um, this petite Asian girl. I think her name was Kiana. And Rick Valente was a, a former competitive bodybuilder. And that's how he trained. I mean, he looked fantastic. Um, I don't think he was natural. But he would always do those sets of 15 and 20 with fairly light weights and that's really good for hypertrophy. So that kind of brings us to your second question. If you put on more mass, could it help? Yeah, it may. And I think you're going to find the volume uh, that bodybuilding training provides. So we'll, we'll say medium weight, but more volume. Um, that's great for hypertrophy. And you might be beefier. Uh, there's little doubt it's going to help your lifts. Uh, whether it stabilizes your joints and everything, well, it's sure not going to hurt. So... Uh, Points well taken. Uh, I think I'm in a similar situation to you, Dan, in, in that um, one of the things I love about bodybuilding training, and I've heard Arnold Schwarzenegger and other people say this, is you could continue to do it through your whole life. Uh, you might have to do lighter weights or different movements and you know kind of adjust, but you're experienced enough to figure that out. So um, I don't think you're automatically going to be uh, <laughs> moving toward ibuprofen chugging and surgeries uh, as long as you, you know, Take the middle path sometimes. All righty. On with a little bit of news before I make some commentary on this neurology issue, and then we get to uh, at least uh, Mike Nelson. I actually got this just last week. Uh, this isn't directly related to lifting, but I think it might interest some listeners. I take curcumin um, just for anti-inflammatory effects. It actually does a lot of things. Neurological uh, which is a topic for today, um, blood sugar control, you know, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant kinds of things. But the title of this is Add-on Treatment with Curcumin Has Antidepressive Effects in Thai Patients with Major Depression. So this is in human beings. Uh, results of a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. So, uh, boy, I can barely pronounce this person's name. Kanchanatawan. Uh, in any case, uh, this is from Neurotox Research 2018. Just a couple of tidbits here. Uh, evidence suggests that curcumin, 500 to 1,000 milligrams per day, a polyphenol with strong anti-free um, radical, if you will, properties, may have efficacy either as a monotherapy, right, by itself, or as an adjunctive therapy to treat depression. So they took 65 participants with major depressive disorder. They randomized them to either get uh, adjunctive curcumin, increasing the dose from 500 up to 1,500 milligrams per day uh, for 12 weeks, or placebo. Uh, four weeks after the active treatment phase, they did a follow-up visit. Um, so that would be, what, week 16? Uh, essentially, as far as the depression rating scale goes, and there's some anxiety uh, inventories and rating scales uh, that they looked at at baseline, uh, two weeks, four, eight, 12, and then that follow-up 16-week. Curcumin was more efficacious than placebo in improving uh, these scores. It uh, says the effects of curcumin were more pronounced uh, in males compared to females. And I find that odd. I hadn't seen a gender difference before. We'll see if that continues to pan out in the literature but in conclusion, down here near the bottom, curcumin administration was safe and well-tolerated even when combined with antidepressants. And I think that's important because there are certainly some herbs um, 
that don't mix well with antidepressants, things like St. John's wort, right? It might be effective as a monotherapy for mild to moderate depression, um, but you're not stacking that. You're not stacking that with your antidepressant meds. But curcumin doesn't seem to have a problem in that regard. So there's just, I think there's lots of mounting evidence to, um, to consider curcumin. It's not highly bioavailable, and we've talked about it on air before. I take things like a curcumin phytosome or a, one's called curcubrain from uh, Now Labs or Now Pharmaceuticals or what have you, um, just because they're their attempts to improve the bioavailability. Uh, you can't just go eat a ton of curry powder and expect to get enough curcumin, in other words. So uh, whether it's for carbohydrate handling or antioxidant effects or uh, neurological type things uh, like this one, uh, interesting stuff that they're getting uh, clinically significant uh, findings there. So at least to put curcumin uh, on your radar, it's one of the few botanicals uh, in the last few years, who's just gotten tons, tons more publications. You could just see on a, imagine a line graph, the number of publications ramping up over the last five years. So researchers are interested in this stuff. And one more before we go to break, and then uh, myself and Dr. Nelson talk about weird neurological phenomenon here in lifters. Consumption of caffeinated energy drinks rises in the U.S. This is from IFT.org, the Institute of Food Technologists. Uh, this is from a study, let's see, in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. Uh, it says, according to the study, energy drink consumption in the U.S. has increased substantially over the past decade among adolescents, young adults, and middle-aged adults. I, I find that interesting. Being <laughs> late middle-aged, uh, it's not just the kids, right, that are walking around with energy drinks. Um it defines them as non-alcoholic beverages that contain caffeine, other plant stimulants like guarana, certain amino acids like taurine, uh, side note, also tyrosine. There's a lot of different amino acids they put in these. Uh, ginkgo biloba, so that's often used for different kinds of blood flow issues, right? That's a botanical. And vitamins. Uh, introduced to the U.S. markets in 97, their caffeine content ranges from 50 to 500 milligrams per serving, and that's compared to, they say, 95 milligrams for an 8-ounce cup of coffee, and that's that's fairly accurate. I usually just think an even 100 for a cup of coffee. Um, if we look at some of the data that they're providing, the analysis is from NHANES, the National Health uh, and Nutrition Examination Survey. So I often think of NHANES as these sort of portable labs that drive around almost like the google maps trucks you know they drive all over america but instead of mapping the roads they're trying to get their fingers on the pulse almost literally of americans you know they might have a little station in their truck about diet records you know to see little logs and how people are eating they might do a blood draw station or a blood pressure station you get the idea and that's how we know about a lot of this stuff so this study sample went from 2003 to 2016 um Roughly 10,000 teenagers, 12,000 young adults, and 11,000 middle-aged adults, they felt that this was a, a good representative cross-sectional cross sample. Um, the prevalence of energy drink consumption on a typical day increased significantly for adolescents from 0.2% to 1.4% of them. From young adults, they went from half a percent to 5.5%, so a bigger jump. And middle-aged adults went from 0 to 1.2%. So the biggest jump is in the young adults. 
per capita consumption of energy drinks increased significantly over this period of 03 to 2016, uh, only for young adults. It says 1.1 to 9.7 calories. So uh, additional calories from the sugars, presumably here. So wrapping up with a quote here uh, and a little bit of final info. Although the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, regulations require energy drink labels to indicate the that the product contains caffeine, the FDA doesn't impose a caffeine limit or insist on certain kind of reporting on the actual level of caffeine. Uh, a quote here from uh, Blyke, B-L-E-I-C-H. Uh, Our findings point to the need for an evidence-based upper caffeine limit and consistent labeling on these beverages to reduce the potential negative health impact on consumers. So interesting stuff. I, a lot of you guys know I'm quite interested in coffee. I actually prefer it to energy drinks most of the time as a pre-workout because of it can actually help with carbohydrate metabolism instead of just harm it, um, at least chronically. But anyway, interesting stuff there. The energy drink intake uh, continues to rise at least up through 2016. So let's go to break. When we come back, I'm going to offer a few uh, thoughts from most of my nutritional perspective on neurological kinds of issues there are actually connections uh, and then dr nelson i'm sure will have lots of fun stories because he's um very well educated in that area hey listeners this is dr lonnie lowry if you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. I Am Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. 
you'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Dr. Lowry, and we're going to cut over to Mike in just a little bit. But I'm going to offer a few uh, thoughts on neurological phenomena related to lifters. I'm going to stick with mostly nutritional type things, although this actually came to my attention uh, because uh, a young lifter was talking about having unilateral uh, weakness. Uh, and he felt even maybe something a little weird with the vision on that one side. And, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, is it possible that there was a mini stroke or who knows what? And so I, I, I feel that's pretty unlikely. <laughs> uh, however, there are very interesting, you know, nervous system type things. However, I am going to stick to nutritional type things. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Phil could speak to different surgeries. I mean, I have some weird local numbness um, at the incision site of a surgical procedure myself. Uh, but nutritionally, there's a couple of things that I think could uh, come up. One, uh, well, actually, all three of these involve a sense of tingling. Often, if you feel something, and I'm not a neurologist, right, so this is not medical advice, but to me, when I feel something that's like burning or uh, tingling, I think that it might be uh, neurological. Uh, sometimes it, co-related with blood flow and that sort of thing, but uh, beta alanine would be one example. If you've ever taken a whopping dose, some people are more sensitive than others to this tingling effect if you take too much beta alanine. It's called paresthesis. So I would actually even suggest, look what's on the bottle, and um, if you've never taken beta alanine before, because some people refer it to almost as if it's like some second generation creatine. Uh, it doesn't do quite the same thing, but it may actually help with a few additional repetitions, for example, because of the uh, it raises carnosine levels uh, in muscle tissue, so a muscle acidity buffer. Um, carnosine also has been related to longer uh, lifespans in lab animals and things like that, so even longevity people might be interested in beta alanine. But if you take uh, a full dose or more, you're going to end up with this paresthesis, this weird tingling sensation. Unfortunately, I think some pre-workout uh, pills or powders, they put beta alanine in there specifically along with the caffeine to make you feel not just wired, but, oh, I tingle and, and I'm wired and, wow, that's strong. You know, it's almost like this gimmicky kind of thing. So um, beta alanine is legitimate as a nutrient, uh, but you have to be very careful. And like I said, if you haven't done it before, it's not harmful per se, but it can be very uh, distracting, that kind of uh, tingling that you get. So beta alanine would be one. Uh, another one is niacin flush. Niacin is another thing that they, they sometimes put in fat burners and pre-workouts. And again, I think it's gimmicky because if you take a large amount, now not like the 16 milligrams or so a day that you know the RDA suggests, but if you take hundreds of milligrams of niacin, it can definitely cause very severe niacin flush. I remember when I was a, a early 20s, maybe late teens, I had read some things about how niacin might help with blood cholesterol levels, and I didn't even have problems with blood cholesterol, but I was excited about nutrition, and I took a 500 milligram uh, niacin, and my face just turned beet red. I mean, I, I went around my face with an ice cube. I went around my face maybe twice, and it's gone. I mean, I, I was that hot, um, but very uh, 
disconcerting, burning sensation from niacin flush. What I don't like about niacin flush in pre-workouts and fat burners is niacin actually acutely blocks fat mobilization. So if you want to try to, you know, extract fatty acids from your love handles, get them through your circulation to working muscles to burn them in your mitochondria, you don't want that interfered with. And niacin will actually block that fat mobilization and subsequent burning process. So to put it in a fat burner or a pre-workout for a cheap, you know, rush, that niacin flush, uh, it's actually counterproductive. It's not just a cheap gimmick. It's actually counterproductive. So again, don't worry if there's a little... RDA level dose of niacin, like I said, like 16 milligrams or so in your pre-workout or fat burner. But if there's hundreds of milligrams, they're going for some cheap thrill instead of uh, efficacy. In fact, it's actually going to harm the effectiveness of the fat burning of your workout probably. So uh, niacin is another. And then lastly, B12 deficiencies. Uh, About one in five older adults have B12 deficiencies and uh, here's the problem with B12 deficiencies is this comes from animal products only, right? So if I work with someone who's a vegan, I'm, I'm concerned already. They're going to have to supplement vitamin B12. It comes from animal sources. Um, but also, it's necessary to maintain the myelin sheaths on your nerves. So if you remember sort of your high school or however much biology you've had, you imagine uh, a nerve and the long axon extending from the nerve. That's got myelin uh, sheaths. Uh, nodes sort of on it, these Schwann cells, and they protect it and that sort of thing. Your body needs vitamin B12 to maintain those myelin sheaths. If you don't get enough, and because we have certain enrichment laws in this country that may mask a B12 deficiency, um, you could end up with permanent nerve damage. I mean, this stuff, it, it manifests everything from, again, with the weird peripheral tingling uh, to... Uh, misfired motor patterns, you know, you can't, it depends the, the nerves that are affected, um, to even uh, psychotic kinds of things, uh, you know, psychological problems in your central nervous system. So B12 uh, is something that needs to be supplemented in people who don't consume meats. And again, in older people, we're talking about maybe 50 years old, possibly in the 40s, but, you know, 50 and beyond, let's say, for argument purposes, uh, you could end up with this B12 deficiency. Now, normally the doctor might catch that with blood work uh, because you'd have large, it's called a megaloblastic type anemia, this pernicious anemia. Uh, but you don't, you don't always see that if there's folate around. Folate in the body is sort of a partner to vitamin B12, but the, I don't want to launch into a lecture on you here, but um, folate was put in the enrichment laws, in other words, into breads and cereals in this country uh, in the year 2000. Uh, and it was done for several reasons. It dramatically lowers birth defects and things like that. So it's a good thing. It's not very toxic. But one thing that it could do is mask a vitamin B12 deficiency. You wouldn't get that weird large cell anemia and you wouldn't even know it. And I don't want to make you sound paranoid, but I'm old enough to start to think, should I do some sublingual B12 every once in a while? Again, you're talking about maybe one in five-ish older adults. Um, there's some issues with intrinsic factor, which is a, a necessary thing your stomach produces to absorb B12 and, and whatnot. But B12 may be another one. Uh, again, if you're concerned about that, you could always ask your doctor, like if you have some of those sorts of uh, symptoms. So I'm going to limit it to that. 
so just a few nutritional type things that affect your nervous system. There are others. I've read neat things about how the anthocyanins, the blue and blueberries may actually help with nervous system recovery and and whatnot. But we're going to go over to uh, Dr. Nelson and let him wrap up for us today. So we'll see you next time. So the question was, two top weird neurological phenomenon you've seen that may affect lifters. So this one's probably going to get a little woo-woo, but uh, the top two. So number one, it's kind of related, but I think the use of hands-on work, and now this could be somebody working on you, such as a therapist, licensed massage therapist, physical therapist, etc. Um, it could also be you doing work on yourself. It could be just using your hands or thumbs uh, or even all sorts of other, I guess you could maybe throw a foam roller and other implement use on, on that also, even though they are a little bit different. Um, foam rollers, I think, are kind of a subcategory. But I think a lot of people forget that they can do their own hands-on work. Um, obviously, they would need to know what they're doing. And it does get to be a little bit tricky since you are the person uh, both doing it and receiving it. So it's kind of harder. So when I have people practice, I will have them kind of practice one way or the other, but you can work on yourself. It's just sometimes harder to try to feel what's going on. So an example of that is, in full disclosure, I do teach for RPR, Reflexive Performance Reset. And what you can do is by working on specific areas on yourself, so such areas like as the sternum and under the ribs and uh, some work in the abdominal area behind the head, it appears to activate neurologically specific muscles. Uh, the first time I heard about this, I thought that was absolutely insane. And I was pretty convinced that there's no way that would make any difference at all, especially if the person's doing it on themselves. Now, the caveat is we don't really have hardly any research on this so far. I know there's uh, some in the works. There was one abstract presented as a poster. One group did RPR work on themselves. The other group did not. I can't remember if there was a sham intervention in that or not. And they compared FMS scores. RPR group did do a little bit better on FMS scores. So take that for what it's worth. However, my thought is that this has to be acting on some sort of neurologic-based mechanism. Uh, one, because doing work on yourself, you're not really going to inflict enough damage, or most people are probably not, because it hurts really bad. Uh, the second one, we do have research looking at uh, the amount of force it takes to do tissue deformation. So how much pressure does it take to change tissue? And we know from acute injuries that that is very high. So it is extremely unlikely that you are actually permanently changing the tissue itself, either by someone doing hands-on work on you or you doing it on yourself. So it's probably a neurologic uh, effect. 
And what I've seen is over the past probably three and a half years, uh, some pretty big substantial changes both in myself and on clients. And like I said, I do teach for RPR. Don't make any money if you really go to a, a course that I'm not teaching. Uh, but I found that it's been extremely useful. Uh, I did a bunch of hands-on work in the past, and for a period of time, I actually just stopped doing it because I didn't see that it would make a permanent change. And then when you would put somebody under a load, they would just kind of revert back to where they were before. So I first got into this about three and a half years ago from uh, Coach Cal Dietz here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, that's where I did my PhD. Turns out the lab I was in was literally uh, just around the corner from him. So I've known Cal, oh man, now for probably like almost 13 years. And we'll go down and pester him about uh, stuff. So he came down one day and convinced me to do this certification from some crazy guy in South Africa that he was bringing over to do it. Uh, that guy was Doug Keel, who does a system called Be Activated. I went through and did it. And after the first day, I didn't really notice much of a difference, to be honest. Um, but I had talked to Cal Fairmont about it, and he said he had athletes that he would do this particular work on, and they would do it on themselves. And he would put them under load literally immediately after, once he changes in velocity via force plate, uh, ease of movement, he had monitored heart rate, uh, HRV, omega wave, and had seen uh, greater changes doing that than anything else he had done before. I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Um, so the second day, which this will get into the second uh, phenomenon I've seen, uh, Doug did some very specific uh, eye work on me, which I'll explain here in a bit, and that actually made a huge difference. So the first one I would say for specific uh, neurologic effects is doing hands-on work on yourself or implement-assisted. And if you can find a very good uh, therapist that can help you with some specific body work, um, I do think that that can be very beneficial. Uh, research on some of it is extremely mixed, um, and it gets messy really fast in terms of how do you uh, test it, both before and after, what do you do for a placebo or a sham intervention, etc. Um, but... I think if you can find a very good therapist, that that is extremely useful. Uh, second part, as I mentioned, has to do with the effect of the eyes. So at a very simple level, your body is always trying to figure out where it is in space. And a couple ways that it does that, I'd say if you kind of narrow them down to three primary ways, uh, at the top of the list is going to be eye function and, and vision. So you can imagine if you were to try to make it through your normal day with your eyes closed, probably going to present some challenges. So we're very visual-based. A uh, second way is uh, vestibular, so the inner ear canals. If you've ever played a game of a dizzy bat, I did this once in college. I had somehow made it through my childhood with never played dizzy bat, and I did it, so those who don't know, you kind of put your head down on a bat and run around it as many times as you can. Uh, idiot me thought, ah, this isn't really going to have that big of an effect. And I did that for four times. I tried to take off running, and it felt like the whole world just slid to the side. And I completely 
fell on my right side, stuck my arm out, skinned up my arm. I got up, thought, ah, this can't happen again, and I went completely off the other direction. So when you play Dizzy Bat, you're basically screwing with the vestibular function, so the balance in the inner ear. Now again, these are kind of dramatically oversimplified, and I'll give you an example of how they work together. So we know that we have got a balance function, vestibular. We've got visual input from the eyes. There's even subcategories of very specific eye movements, such as saccades, or sometimes called saccades. And then we've got proprioception. So if you've ever been uh, pulled over by the police and had to do the old touch your nose test, right? close your eyes, they're checking to see how your proprioception is. Do you know where your nose is without moving your head and without opening your eyes, right? So kind of this 3D map that our brain always has of our body. And in reality, all of these are highly integrated with each other. So one of my favorite studies is they took people, they put them in a dark room where it was almost pitch black. They could not see anything. And they stuck them on a device to measure sway. And of course, not really knowing where anything is in the room, they have them do a sway test and they can see that they're oscillating around a fair amount. And then they said, okay, I want you to reach out and touch the wall that's right in front of you. It's only about a little bit over a foot away. Touch the wall and then bring your hand back down. So they were not stabilized using the wall. They were just touching the wall, brought their arm back down to their side. What they found was their sway cleaned up a lot. They did not sway nearly as much as before. And at first glance, you're like, well, that seems weird. Why, why would that happen? They're not touching the wall. They're not stabilizing. But what they did is their brain proprioceptively now mapped how far away the wall is. So probably figures, hey, we're a safe distance away from, from the wall. Everything's going to be okay. And their sway kind of cleaned up. So all of these overlap in very specific ways, which we won't get into. Uh, but so when I was doing the training to be activated with uh, Doug Heal, he had me do some very specific uh, eye movements. And that actually made a huge difference for me. So in my case, when they tested me, I was what he called a functional zero, which doesn't sound like a good thing at all. That whenever my eyes were open, I would be getting weaker in exercises. I would close my eyes, I would take out that visual field, and I would actually get a little bit stronger. And that definitely seems like a bunch of weird woo-woo stuff. And he did some very specific work on me by putting my eyes in a stressed out position. And then he did some hands-on work on me, which was incredibly painful. But the crazy part about it was after he was done, I kind of walked around for a little bit. And I could reach out and catch a ball that he threw off to my left side. And I could see all of the writing on the ball. Um, so when I was born, I had what's considered a strabismus or a lazy eye meaning that both my eyes don't work in the same method. So when I was about four, I saw in double vision. But after a while, your brain doesn't want to see in double vision because that's very confusing. But it figures out really fast what's the real image and what's the false image, right? Going back to proprioception, if I see two glasses of water in front of me, I interact with them, I know what is, quote, the real image and what is the false image. So in my case, my right eye sits up and out a little bit farther than what it should. 
So when the two images go to the back of the brain to try to fuse them together to create a three-dimensional image, they're too far apart, so I saw in double vision. So the brain solution is to suppress one of those images at the last second so that I drop from binocular vision to see in 3D to monocular. So imagine if you were just to kind of walk around all the time with one eye closed. In essence, that's kind of how I see the world. Now, it's gotten a lot better over time with some of the work that uh, Doug uh, did on me, some of the work I've done through uh, functional neurology. But the reason I bring this up as sort of a neurologic phenomenon and how it can possibly help you if you're listening to this, one of the biggest questions I ask clients if their movement is not as fluid as what I think that it should be, or I just feel like something's kind of off, the question I'll ask them is, do you enjoy playing ball sports? And a lot of times if they've had kind of some visual issues, playing ball sports is not fun. So when I was a kid, I just assumed that if you sucked at athletics, you'd get hit in the face with a ball, and that's just part of life. And it turns out that's not really normal at all. Um, but if you see in monocular, right, trying to determine where a ball is going to come at your face, it's going to be quite a bit harder. So a lot of times I'll see people who in high school kind of go towards even weightlifting, wrestling, even like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now, BJJ, things where you're holding on to someone, you can use that proprioceptive system, don't really have to be so good at using your eyes. So one of the questions I'll ask is, you know, did you play ball sports? Did you like playing ball sports? If they said no, in the back of my head I'm thinking, eh, may have some weird visual stuff going on. If they don't seem like they're responding the way that I should, again, if you know what you're doing, you can do some very basic tests and see what's going on. If you don't have those skills, then you would want to look for someone who is a behavioral optometrist. Or in my opinion, I would actually start with someone who is a functional neurologist. Again, I'm biased because I'm a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and they do functional neurology. So you can look on their website. You'll be able to find uh, some people in your area. Uh, but with functional neurology, they're looking at all these different eye movements to figure out which ones are not working the way that they should. And again, a lot of work they do is after injuries, such as a TBI, so traumatic brain injury. Uh, the office that I work out of just primarily doing exercise programming as with Dr. Jeremy Schmo, and he does a lot of work with TBI with athletes from actually all over the world. Um, so getting that specific work done, I think will make a big difference, especially if you have someone who is playing a more athletic type sport where coordination is higher. I do think even in powerlifting, where again, it's not coordination of external stimuli, you're just more proprioceptive based, I do think it is beneficial on that. So my two weird neurologic things, uh, one, I believe most hands-on work, which is either a therapist working on you or you kind of doing some work on yourself, it's probably based on neurology that changes to your nervous system. You're giving your body this proprioceptive or this feedback to then alter its system. There may be some sliding of tissue a little bit, something you can look up called the GAGs, glycoaminoglycans. So you may break those up a little bit 
but you're definitely not uh, poking on your IT band and you're not changing the mechanical properties of that. You're just not applying enough force and nor would you want to. Uh, second one is looking at the effects of eyes. Good question to ask clients if they just don't seem to be as coordinated as what you think they should be. Uh, one, what is their background? Have they ever had any eye issues? Um, the second one is, did they play any ball sports? If they did and they enjoyed it, probably not it. Again, this is just a rough screen. If they did and they're like, oh man, I hate ball sports. You know, softball was the absolute worst. And then all of a sudden they started taking up wrestling at that time. I would say at least getting them uh, a screen to see where they're at. Last part on that too is if they have had any type of concussion. I usually find that most people who have been concussed, there's usually some type of eye function that is not working as well as it could. And in my experience, that can affect obviously the rest of the function of the body, especially since most of us are very visual based. Uh, so those are my two. Thank you guys very much. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and 
qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.